a little over 400 years ago, during the reign of King James I, you know, the guy famous for the Bible, a group of separatists seeking religious freedom took a hazardous journey across the Atlantic Ocean to a new world, landing in what is now known as Plymouth, Massachusetts. We all know the story. These were the pilgrims. And after a difficult first year, in the fall of 1621, the survivors and the indigenous people of the area shared an amazing feast. Actually, it was three days of feasting and games and exercises from late September to mid-November. First winter had been very harsh with an incredible loss of life, including almost 80% of the women who had made the journey. What was left was a small group, 50 people, 22 men, four married women, and 25 children and teenagers. The feast was one of thanksgiving for making it through a year, no matter how harsh, and it soon became an annual tradition for Americans. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln officially named the last Thursday of November as a Thanksgiving national holiday. Join me in the Economic War Room where we will explore the history of Thanksgiving. And believe it or not, this history has some important economic lessons for today. Not long after I graduated from college, my new mentor, the great Sir John Marks Templeton, offered to send me to Oxford to get a doctorate degree. He was funding a new all-graduate college concentrated on business, management, and investing. In order to qualify for the school, Sir John sent me to New York first. I had to meet at the president, U.V. Kitzinger. That was 1987. The meeting was to take place at a reception in a Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue apartment in, in the penthouse. I mean, this is the most expensive real estate in New York. I stayed at the Holiday Inn across town something I could afford as a young 20-something. And I walked to the reception wearing the best suit I owned. It was intimidating. I was trying to explain to the doorman at this swank apartment building that I was really actually supposed to be there. All I had were my handwritten notes, and I said, look right here. And you know, finally, I convinced the doorman because I knew the name of the guest of honor and other attendees were showing up dressed better than I was and they verified, oh yes, there's a thing with UV Kitzinger in this apartment. Now it was a long elevator, elevator ride up. It's a big, tall building. And when the doors opened, I was shocked at how big the entryway was. My host owned the whole floor. I was greeted by the largest St. Bernard dog I'd ever seen and a massive grand piano. Wow! In the entryway of an apartment. My host was someone named William P. Carey, and he greeted me warmly. He walked up. But what does a 26-year-old say to the guy that has this massive apartment? I didn't know anything about him. There was no internet to do the research on him. I later learned he was among the most successful real estate investors in New York history. There are colleges named after this guy at Arizona State, Johns Hopkins, the University of Maryland, and the University of Pennsylvania. Those aren't slouch schools. I stammered. He greeted me, and I didn't know what to say. And so, oh, I noticed he had a lapel pin. So I asked him about it. I said, hey, that's a beautiful lapel pin. And he answered, would you like one? This is my Mayflower Society pin. I later learned that he was the Governor General of the Mayflower Society. Now I knew enough to know that I wouldn't qualify, but he kindly asked anyway, are you a descendant from the Mayflower? 
Now, I stole my swift answer straight from my sixth or seventh cousin, Will Rogers. No, sir, I said, but my ancestors were there to meet the boat. And he laughed. And that night I did meet Dr. U.V. Kitzinger, and I was approved to attend Oxford at Templeton College and get a doctorate. Dr. Kitzinger was an amazing guy. He had an eye patch. He looked kind of like a pirate. Unfortunately, my family obligations prevented me from attending. It was a disappointment to Sir John Templeton, but he later hired me and I helped build his uh, private client group. That was my second and last shot at Oxford. A few years prior, I'd been a state finalist in Oklahoma for the Rhodes Scholarship. I was the University of Tulsa's candidate for Rhodes Scholar. Now, I share this story to illustrate the powerful impact of the Mayflower and the Plymouth Colony. It's a great story of overcoming hardship and building something amazing. I mean, William P. Carey came as a descendant and now he owned half of New York or some huge portion. I don't know. But who would have ever imagined that this small group of ragtag people almost wiped out by the severe challenges of a new world would result in the America that we now know today? That's all true. But then there's the rest of the story. I mentioned in the open that many of the Mayflower passengers were seeking religious freedom. What I didn't share was that they were under contract to the Virginia Company and the passengers had all signed the Mayflower Compact that was supposed to be the basis of their government in the New World. Now, under the original rules, every member of the group was expected to work and all members had an equal share with profits to be given back to the original investors. So basically, they were indentured servants and they all shared equally in kind of in a socialistic uh, framework. On the ground, it certainly functioned a lot like socialism. Even the left-leaning Slate magazine was forced to admit this in a November 25th, 2014 article. And I'm going to quote from it. They said, It is true that the Plymouth settlers abandoned a system of common ownership in favor of private property. Wait, what? That a system of common ownership and they later abandoned it for private property, which they found much more to their liking. So here's what happened. <laughs> Basically, the Plymouth settlers said, oh, we'll share everything and share alike. And the young people said, wait a minute, I'm working harder than you are and you're getting an equal share? Well, socialism always fails. And even Slate Magazine had to admit it. Uh, they quoted, in his memoirs, William Bradford, the colony's first governor, writes that the communal lifestyle was found to breed much confusion and discontent and retard much employment. That means work. For the young men that were most able and fit for the labor and service did repine that they should spend their time and strength to work for other men's wives and children without any recompense. After that, every family was assigned its own parcel of land to farm. And Bradford wrote, this had very good success for it made all hands very industrious so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. Okay, here's the picture. In 1621, a little over 400 years ago, the pilgrims landed. They had a terrible winter. A lot of people died. They got a decent harvest. They had a Thanksgiving. But they were still under socialism. Year one, it worked out fine. Year two, it didn't work out nearly as well uh, because the, in year two, the people were a little bit, hey, you know, I'm putting all the work in here and I'm only getting an equal share of the benefits, like socialism always fails. And then in year three, they wised up and they said, let's have private property. And that's where free 
enterprise came to the United States of America. Originally, it was under communism, and later they adopted it. So that third Thanksgiving was more abundant than it ever would have been. Now, I want to quote from Mississippi Center for Public Policy. They said, from Plymouth Rock all the way to the Soviet Union, socialism has been an unbroken record of failure. The successful American experiment rejected socialism from its very start, and an embrace of socialism would ultimately spell its end. For the legacy of the pilgrims and the founding fathers to continue, the lessons of history must be heeded and followed. As families gather across the nation to thank God for the blessings of the year and look back on America's legacy, it is important to ensure that future generations will be able to reap the blessings of freedom. As the rise of socialism seeks to undermine the country's future, a return to America's foundation just might start by looking back to the lessons of Plymouth Rock. Now that's wise advice. And fortunately, we can do just that. Not long ago, we had Rick Green, the founder of Patriot Academy, join us in the economic war room. I'd attended their banquet late last year featuring the actor Kirk Cameron, and he was telling the true story of our pilgrim forefathers. What he shared was incredible. For example, I'd been unaware that in America, indeed in Plymouth, Massachusetts, you can find the National Monument to the Forefathers. What's better, it was conceived in the 1820s, 200 years after the Pilgrims and 200 years ago. It was started in 1859 when they laid the cornerstone, and Abraham Lincoln was one of the first 10 donors to its construction. Now, I've been to Plymouth, Massachusetts. I didn't even know this existed. But the monument was completed and dedicated on August 1st, 1889. It is 81 feet tall and overlooks the Atlantic Ocean. Best of all, it captures the spirit of the forefathers and the important lessons that they taught us. And yet, like me, many of you may know very little about this powerful symbol, the largest solid granite monument in America. Now, Rick Green sent us a statue of the monument, and I thought, in honor of Thanksgiving, we should share it with you. This is a prize of the Economic War Room. And here are a few things we should notice. There are five main figures with faith at the center on the top and the largest, and smaller figures of morality, law, education, and liberty surrounding the main figure. And flanking each major figure are other images to help you explain the meaning. There's also the passenger list of the Mayflower, where you can find the ancestors of William P. Carey, a quote from Pilgrim Governor William Bradford, and engravings that tell the Pilgrim story. To do justice to the monument, let me read from the booklet that accompanied our statue, and this booklet was written by Kirk Cameron. The National Monument to the Forefathers <clears throat> was built to represent the biblical worldview of the pilgrims. He explains faith, which is at the top. Faith, it is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. This is George Wangton, founding father and first president of the United States. Everything starts with faith. Faith is the largest of the five figures in the monument. Faith pointing up toward the God of heaven. You see the pointing up. She has a star on her forehead and a book in her hand. The star represents wisdom, and the book is the Bible. Specifically, she's holding the Geneva Bible, the same Bible the pilgrims brought with them on the Mayflower ship, not the King James. The Geneva Bible was the first English translation of the Bible that included chapters, verses, and study notes. 
In other words, the first time for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son was referred to as John 3.16 was in the Geneva Bible. Its pages are being blown open in this uh, statue as if by the wind of the Holy Spirit. Faith's name is inscribed on the rock upon which she is standing. The pilgrims believe that a free and prosperous nation begin, must begin with a true and living faith. That faith must be in the God of the Bible and it manifests in four essential areas of life, morality, law, education, and liberty. So let's talk about morality. Here's a quote again. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. Morality. You know, we can't govern the country if we have an immoral people start to finish. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why church is important. Morality. Uh, Kirk goes on and says, Morality is portrayed as a woman seated on a chair. Her eyes are closed. She is looking inward. Morality was understood by the pilgrims to be an internal quality. Our Christian ancestors believed that true morality was not something that could be imposed externally by an authoritarian king or magistrate. They believed morality began internally with the transformation of the heart by the Spirit of God in response to the gospel message of salvation. Morality holds the Ten Commandments in her left hand and the scroll of Revelation in her right hand. Now I'll go on. Let's talk about law. Where there is no law, there can be no liberty, and nothing deserves the name of law but that which is certain and universal in its operations upon all the members of the community. That's Benjamin Rush, the founding father and the signer of the Declaration of Independence. Kirk Cameron writes, The man of law is seated in a judge's chair. He is holding the book of the law in his left hand while his right hand is extended in mercy. Notice the judge's book of law is directly beneath the book of God's law in faith's hand, which is the Bible, indicating that man's laws must always line up, be in agreement with God's laws. And engraved on the right side of the judge's chair is the Lady of Justice. She's holding weighing scales in one hand and a sword in the other. The sword represents that civil government is power and does not bear the sword in vain. That's Romans 13:4. To the judge's left is an engraving of God's mercy. Good laws are not only just, but a divine blend of justice and mercy, just as God's laws are both just and merciful. When a society secures good morality through faith and civility through good laws, Evil will be reasonably restrained and children can be successfully educated. The next pillar here is education. Again, quoting Benjamin Rush, the only foundation for a useful education in a republic is to be laid in religion. Without this, there can be no virtue, and without virtue, there can be no liberty, and liberty is the object and life of all republican governments. Education here is represented by a radiant woman holding a book of knowledge. She's wearing a laurel wreath of victory around her head. Notice that education is not represented by a government authority. Education is characterized by a woman, likely a mother. The pilgrims believed that children were the trust of the family, not of the state, and believed that education was a God-given, parent-led privilege and sacred responsibility. A civil government-controlled education would have been viewed by the pilgrims as a great tyranny and abuse of their sacred trust. Remember, the pilgrims were free-thinking Christians who had Bibles from which to reason. Moreover, 
They had just left a tyrannical government leader who wanted to pervert their biblical faith and educate their children with a false view of the world. Some things never change, right? Liberty. Those who can give up essential liberty to obtain a temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. That's Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, of course, founding father, uh, signer of the Declaration of Independence, really noted, amazing man. So Franklin talked about the essential liberty. Here's what Kirk Cameron writes. Christianity, rightly understood and lived out, produces liberty. Liberty, man, is the product. He's been set free both internally from the power of sin and externally from the power of tyrants and oppressive governments. He's dressed in the full armor of God found in Ephesians 6. He's wearing a breastplate of righteousness, a helmet of salvation, a belt of truth, and sandals of peace. He's holding a sword of the Spirit. The weapon is resting in its sheath, symbolizing victory over the enemy. And the chains on his ankles and feet have been broken. He's been set free. On Liberty's shoulder is the claw of a lion. The lion symbolized England. The beast of tyranny had been overthrown and its hide draped across the Liberty Man's back. On the right side of Liberty Man's chair is an engraving of tyranny overthrown. On the left side of Liberty Man's chair is an engraving of his wife. Her name is Peace and she's holding a basket of gifts for her family and friends. Liberty Man's eyes are focused. He's ready to defend his faith, his morality, his laws, and the sacred responsibility to educate his children in a biblical worldview. And underneath Liberty are the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock. We begin the journey around the monument with the embarkation, leaving Europe to find freedom and a new society based on biblical law. And we end by stepping on Plymouth Rock, the symbol of liberty and the new world. So all of this is the national monument to the forefathers. You know, Kirk Cameron, he made an incredible movie about this, about his journey to discover the monument and then uncover its powerful message. We'll put a link to that in our economic battle plan. In fact, we'll put a description of the monument. You'll see photos of it and everything else, as well as where to access more information about this monument and the true story of Thanksgiving in our free economic battle plan. And you can find that at economicwarroom.com. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from The Economic War Room.